2: Live from our nation's capital, 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
3: The final sprint. This is it. The final sprint to Election Day. We've got you covered. Everything you need to know, plus what happened in the markets today. And we check in with a lawmaker who's now back in their district from Capitol Hill. A lot to get through in the next hour and a half, especially now as we enter the final sprint. The final sprint. To November 3rd. And yes, there have been a record number of folks that we've been saying who have already voted in this election, but there are so many unknown variables that we're going to explore throughout the next uh, hour and a half or so. 14 states spanning the Rocky Mountain West to Pennsylvania recorded all time highs in coronavirus cases this week. That's the most of the pandemic. Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, we mentioned Pennsylvania, are among the states that hit single-day highs just today, according to the COVID Tracking Project data. Colorado and others reported highs earlier in the week, according to the data. PA was earlier in the week. The superlatives show how the wave that started in the upper Midwest is now hitting most of the nation. And overall, cases hit a single-day record of 88,452 just today. And the number of people hospitalized with the virus in the U.S. rose to nine and ninety five. I mean, I'm looking at my Bloomberg terminal chart right here, the U.S. COVID-19 daily cases versus currently hospitalized, and it's just the number of cases far out out far outpaces uh, the, the number of hospitalizations, but both are still somewhat trending up. So we've got a lot to get through. And I, I, I mentioned the coronavirus at the top of the show, folks, because it's not just a political story. And I get it. This is political season. It's also an economic story. It's also an economic story, and we're going to talk about that. Tech route sends stocks to worst week since March. U.S. stocks dropped, capping their biggest weekly route since March after earnings from the largest tech companies. Disappointed investors concerned that a slowing economy will damp profit. The NASDAQ 100 declined about 2.6% after Apple's iPhone sales and Twitter's user growth both missed Estimates Joining us on the line, as he does frequently, we're so grateful to have him, Calvin Schnorr, Senior Economist at Navery. Calvin, help me make sense of the COVID increase cases and the tech earnings reports and what went on in the market today.
5: Well, nobody likes uncertainty, and we've got a bundle load of uncertainty right now. Uh, You know, the tech sector has been doing really well. Is uh, it, it had been leading the market, and, and you know with with a, a combination of factors one it 's just been a strong sector even before the pandemic, and secondly we 're doing a lot more things online um, we need more equipment if we're working from home. We want to have updated phones if we're doing things. Um, but this is just a reality check that maybe the growth isn't going to be as strong. And to the extent that the, the COVID slows the rest of the economy, um, maybe people don't have quite as much disposable income. Uh, and that's a negative for all types of spending, even the, either, even the things that are strong. So you're seeing a correction in the, in the, uh, in the tech sector, Apple, the other tech stocks.
3: And meanwhile, GDP surged in the third quarter, rising at a record rate thirty one thirty two thirty three thirty three point something percent of GDP growth uh, in the last uh, in the last quarter. How have the markets interpreted that Well,
5: people anticipated this pretty well because it 's just reversing some but not all the decline that we saw earlier in the year. Now, the, the, the thing that's really funny is uh, if you look at the quarterly numbers, you saw a big decline in the second quarter, and then a surge uh, coming almost back the full way up in the third quarter. But that's kind of masking a monthly trend. It's like you have a square peg that doesn't fit into a round hole. Uh, activity, consumer spending fell really sharply in March and April, but then May and June were the big surges, but they were surging from a very low level that meant the full second quarter was low. Why do we bring that up? Because the increases have slowed since then. If you look at consumer spending... It had been growing 87 6.5% in May and June, but since then it's been 1% to 1.5%. So we're seeing some slowing in, in our recovery since then, which means you couple that with increased COVID cases, uh, the reality is it's going to take longer for us to get back to a pre-pandemic level uh, with, with, with the virus spreading and with slowing uh, consumer spending growth.
3: Calvin Schnorr is with us. He is the senior economist at Navy. You mentioned consumer spending. I mean, what are folks spending money on? It's it's actually it's interesting. I mean, the data that's come out, Calvin, you would know this better than anybody. The data that's come out this week has been somewhat confusing in terms of what economists are looking at to try to gauge the the pace of the economic recovery. When you've got folks, you know, spending a lot of money on oh I don't know, remodeling their their closets, because they've got their do-it-yourself home projects, or they've been watching The Home Edit on Netflix for too much, or for whatever reason, or they've got uh, they're spending money, or and, and, and what we've seen in housing. But how has consumer spending provided some both confidence, but also some confusion for for uh, economists?
5: Well, the the level of consumer spending has been coming back, uh, but it's really shifted. You were you were touching on the things that people are spending money on. People are spending money on goods. Uh if you're at home and you're staying at home, you're not going out. People have been buying Things to up, fix up the home, uh, whether it's for recreation, you know, new furniture, uh, he- a heater for the outdoor deck, or whether it's for the home office because you're working from home, you're not you're not going out, so you're spending things on those goods. And actually, goods spending, you know, total durable goods was uh, almost 13% higher in the second quarter than it was a year ago. Um, but it's a very different picture when you look at consumer spending on services. You know, travel, restaurants, entertainment, things like that, uh, those areas are still seven and quarter percent lower than a year ago. So there's a big diversion. The economy is not going to be healthy until, well, first of all, until people are healthy, but until we have spending growth coming back on all of these, the services as well as the goods that are rising so much right now.
3: Yeah, it's a really good point. And meanwhile, all this comes as they're still talking about economic stimulus and the, and the uh, impact of economic stimulus. Tyler Goodspeed, acting chairman and vice chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, spoke with my colleague David Weston on Bloomberg Balance of Power, uh, which can be heard daily from noon to 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. Take a listen to what Tyler Goodspeed had to say about the impact of economic stimulus.
7: The Paycheck Protection Program, the Employee Retention Tax Credit helped to retain uh, employment and make sure that, that the job losses that we did observe in those dark days of March and April were expected to be temporary in nature. And on the household side, the unprecedented scale of the, of the fiscal support through the economic impact payments. Uh, And also the enhanced unemployment insurance uh, benefits that were offered and extended by President Trump uh, through a series of of executive actions definitely helped to stabilize uh, consumer spending, which at the end of the day is 70 percent of the U.S. economy.
3: He went on to talk about how the White House is still committed to phase four stimulus package. Here
7: he is. We would like to see. Phase 4 legislation, we're disappointed that uh, it appears congressional leadership, the speaker, has not been negotiating in good faith. But we here at the White House remain committed to uh, Phase 4 legislation and also to ensuring that the tax and regulatory regime that delivered such unprecedented gains uh, through 2019 extend into the future.
3: That was Tyler Goodspeed, acting chairman and vice chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. He spoke earlier today with my colleague, David Weston. My thanks to Calvin Schnorr for getting things kicked off for us. Uh, He, of course, is a senior economist over there at Navy. Coming up, uh, we talked to Gregory Cordy uh, about the battleground states, Bloomberg's very own national political reporter. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio and Spotify. Up next also, Congressman Brian Stile, who represents the 1st Congressional District of Wisconsin. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
2: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
3: I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Wisconsin, it's going to be such an incredibly important, important battleground state. And coming up, we're going to check in with Republican Wisconsin Congressman Brian Stile, who represents the first congressional District. Uh, That's in the next hour. Uh, But here to talk about these battleground states and just how incredibly important a state like Wisconsin uh, is going to be to both President Trump as well as to Joe Biden. Gregory Corti, my colleague Gregory Corti, who's a Bloomberg national political reporter. Gregory, you've got this incredible, seriously, folks, truly not just blowing smoke here, incredible story up on the Bloomberg terminal, the battleground states that will decide the presidential race. You mentioned uh, a host of different states, but I just want to pick this piece apart and go through it. Um, Talk to me about the importance of Wisconsin.
4: Well, you know, of course that was one of the the three blue wall states that President Trump won in 2016 uh that really kind of cracked um uh, the Hillary Clinton's path to victory. Um it's uh it is a state that is um sort of a, a has historically been competitive, but uh this year has been trending Joe Biden's way, but as we all learned from 2016 anything can happen. Um it's a state obviously uh, that, that has a, a, uh, it's, it's a it's a pretty good mix of city suburbs and rural also agriculture industrial and that's what makes a lot of those um, Midwestern states such uh, important battlegrounds is that they are kind of reflective of the country as a whole um, and have you know imp- it, populations demographics that maybe are a little bit more like the the, the country as a whole and that's why we look to them.
3: It's incredible. I mean, to look at some of the impacts, Gregory Cordy, Bloomberg national political reporter that are are really playing in states like Wisconsin. You look at Kenosha County, for example, which of course was the site of some unrest over uh, the summer, but also the economics of a state like Wisconsin. Talk to me just about how these two issues in particular, racial inequality, as well as the economy, are playing in a state like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. Pennsylvania, we've talked about this frequently this week on this program, it's at Philadelphia under curfew, the National Guard arriving tonight, um, or today, rather, uh, because of, of uh, racial unrest happening and protests and at times rioting and looting happening uh, in the city of brotherly love. So in PA, Michigan, and Wisconsin, the economy of racial inequality, talk to me about those two specific in- issues and the tension between them.
4: Yeah, President Trump has been running a different kind of campaign in especially Minnesota and Wisconsin. And that's where we had George Floyd's death death at the beginning of the summer. We've had those uh, protests in in Kenosha. And President Trump has really tried to seize on that, uh, make Black Lives Matter an issue, appeal to rural voters who might be a little bit more concerned about what they're seeing in in nearby cities. I, I would expect maybe that that same kind of rhetoric to expand to Pennsylvania, given uh, what we see now, um, and you know, conversely, I think Joe Biden has tried to use those issues as a, a, a way to campaign on a more, shall we say, uh, uh, unifying theme of uh, you know tr- trying to walk this tightrope of. I would say using
3: more of an ethos appeal, but go ahead.
4: Yeah, I mean, I I, I think he's walking the tightrope of of certainly not wanting to appear to condone the violence that's going on in some of these cities, um, certainly condemning it, but also trying to understand what the root causes of that are, and uh, trying to have a more sort of uh, unifying message than you hear from the president, which is very much kind of an us versus them uh, kind of rhetoric. Um, So, you know, obviously this is, we all know with the Electoral College, uh, it's really 50 different state uh, races and it's just where we are it's it's maybe much more narrower than that 12 states maybe even down to six states right. uh but what, the, what the, my point is you're seeing the campaigns wage each candidate wage campaigns in those states that are on issues unique to that state
3: and, and it's so so incredibly important because for all that we've used we've beaten to death the uh the, oh, turnout is, is, is so important, and it is, it is, but it's also all politics is local, which is, of course, probably my favorite political thing that gets said a million times. Okay, uh, we talked so much about how Joe Biden is looking to expand the map. Uh, I, something I, I do want to bring up are, are states where Republicans feel they could expand their map, Minnesota and Nevada. Talk to me about Minnesota and Nevada. Minnesota, mind you, had it vo- hasn't voted for a Republican since Nixon Nixon. So if the president wants to pick up a state, Minnesota is is a state that they feel that they could do. And then talk to me about Nevada as well.
4: Yeah, so well, Minnesota. We talked about a few moments ago. That's where the Black Lives Matter movement got reinvigorated earlier this summer with the death of, of George Floyd, led to widespread protests. President Trump has tried to capitalize on that. It's a state where he showed somewhat surprising strength in 2016, and he's hoping that a large turnout from the rural vote there could propel him to victory. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to tell. The the Joe Biden appears to have by all the the publicly available polling a, a wide lead. So, uh, but this seems to be more than a head fake from President Trump. He's he's gone into to Minnesota and he stayed in Minnesota, uh, which makes me think that they they are sincere in their efforts to to win it back. Nevada, you know, has been a swing state in the in the past. Its demographics are becoming uh, much more uh, Hispanic. Uh, the service industries, hospitality industries, the casinos, obviously, are a big industry there, and those have been the hardest hit by COVID, Uh, and so uh, I would imagine that just the issue environment there is uh, pretty friendly to a challenger Democrat given these uh, economic times that we're in. I
3: love this story by Gregory Corti and and Reid Pickert. Gregory's on the line with us, both are national political reporters here at Bloomberg. I love this because it's just the facts. It's just the data. I didn't realize this. I'm, I'm on my Bloomberg terminal now looking at their Their analysis, four in 10 U.S. voters live in 13 states. These 13 states have all been impacted by COVID, but in different ways and at different times. But four in 10 U.S. voters live in in 13 battleground states. Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Iowa, Michigan, Minnesota, New Hampshire, North Carolina, Ohio, PA, Texas, or Wisconsin. And then this is the number that I did know. And this is, I think, it's a little bit upsetting, I think, if you when you hear it. But it's, you know, every, it's 77,744. That's the magic number. That's the number of votes that made up President Trump's combined margin of victory in the three states of Michigan, PA, and Wisconsin last cycle. I mean, when you talk about how close these elections are, and 2016 was, it's— Gregor, I mean it it's to say it's a nail biter, I mean it's it's beyond close.
4: No doubt. I mean, in, in, and you can go into each of these individual battleground states and see close races. The the thing is now, though, just to kind of set expectations going into next Tuesday, is that Joe Biden has is at least tied, and uh, in most states had a, has a slight to large lead in most of these battleground states. So even though certainly uh, President Trump is within striking distance of cobbling together the 270 any electoral votes he needs to, to win a second term, it, it, it would almost it would be more surprising than in 2016, because he really has to, to pull that rabbit out of a hat again, run the table of all of these states that are leaning the other way. It's not impossible. So many X factors, so many variables in this year so right. of COVID. Uh, but you really, I, look, I would rather be in Joe Biden's shoes right now than, than Donald Trump's, but uh, you, you never take anything for granted in politics.
3: Wow. Very, very, very interesting. Gregory Cordy, thanks so much for checking in with us on Friday. Great reporting. Just brilliant, brilliant analysis. Coming up next, much more politics policy. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to
0: Bloomberg 991. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more.
2: Cyrilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
3: This is it, the final weekend before November 3rd, and we check in with a lawmaker on the ground in a battleground state of Wisconsin. You don't want to miss that. Plus, an all star political panel as COVID cases are now going up in. Key battleground states. The latest from the Bloomberg Terminal. First, though, let's get a check of the headlines from my good friend, Nancy Lyons. Hey there, Nancy.
8: Hey, Kevin. President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden are campaigning in the upper Midwest today as they pick up the pace to their sprint to Election Day. President Trump started off with a rally in Michigan touting yesterday's GDP report on annualized growth. I used to talk about the V. This is a super V. This is the biggest number, 33.1, and the news doesn't want to talk
9: about it because it's positive.
8: The rebound, while historic, did not bring us back, though, to where the economy was before the pandemic. Trump is also making stops in Wisconsin and Minnesota today. Well, Joe Biden spoke first to a drive-in rally in Iowa.
10: Honk, if you want America to lead again. Honk, if you want America to trust each other again
8: all want America to be united again. Biden today is also going to Minnesota and Wisconsin. The U.S. elections project says more than 85 million votes have been cast either by mail or in person so far. That's more than 62 percent of the total number of votes in the entire 2016 election. Well, we're getting a pretty good idea of how early voting is going in our region. Bloomberg's Steve POTUS takes a look at Maryland.
11: In Maryland, in-person early voting began on Monday, and a record 152,031 ballots were cast that day. The momentum kept up through the early part of the week, with about 150,000 more early votes on both Tuesday and Wednesday. The Baltimore Sun reports weekends are generally the slowest days for early voting, since people are advised to come in during off-peak hours to avoid lines.
8: Early voting continues through Monday night at 8. Steve Potas, Bloomberg 991 and 105.7 HD2. Early voting in Virginia ends tomorrow at 5 p.m. To accommodate the crowds, Fairfax County extended the hours for its early voting centers for today as well as yesterday. Tomorrow, all early voting sites will be open from 9 to 5. Statewide, more than 2.3 million people had voted as of Wednesday, according to the Virginia Public Access Project. About 1.5 million in person, nearly 850,000 by mail. The Alexandria City Public Schools Board is retaining its contract with police for school resource officers for at least another two years. The vote on that was 6-3, to but the contract has undergone 10 revisions after extensive public input with a new emphasis on data and equality in how students are treated. During a two-hour discussion, board member Margaret Lorber expressed her concerns, which were then addressed by Police Chief Michael Brown.
0: I can't get used to the idea or accept the idea of guns
6: and handcuffs in schools.
2: I do respect your opinion on the handcuffs and the weapons, but I uh, frankly would not uh,
8: the city's school policing program, established in 1997, today involves six total officers, five SROs and one SRO sergeant. The new contract will take effect next week. Maryland's largest school system, Montgomery County, is also assessing the school resource officer program and will be taking up the matter in January. It's time now for the Beltway Business Report. Here is Bloomberg's Tracy Jonke.
6: Nancy, how bad was Wall Street's week? An entire month of gains disappeared in the first three days, and the major averages are down for the week by the most since March. The Dow down 6.5%, the NASDAQ and S&P down 5.5% for the week. Today, the Dow is down 158 points, more than half of 1%. At 26,502, the NASDAQ down 274 points, 2.5%, The S&P down one and a quarter percent, 40 points. Travel stocks weren't pulled under like the rest. The CDC said it would not renew a ban on cruises in U.S. waters. And it released requirements the ships have to meet to set sail again from U.S. ports. Many unemployment claims get processed fairly quickly, but some need a closer look to determine if the applicant is eligible. The federal government says that review should happen within 21 days. The Virginia Mercury reports that since April, the state met that guideline in just 9% of cases. The national average... 52 percent. The Virginia Employment Commission is still working to process applications received in June. You're up to date on business from the Beltway to Baltimore. I'm Tracy Jonke. This is Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Thanks,
8: Tracy. Global News, 24 hours a day on air and on Bloomberg Quick Take, powered by more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. I'm Nancy Lyons. Back to you, Kevin.
3: Thank you, Nancy. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. We begin tonight as 14 states spanning the Rocky Mountain West to Pennsylvania have recorded all-time highs in cases of coronavirus this week. The most of the pandemic, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, are all among the states that hit single-day highs Thursday. This just according to COVID Tracking Project out of PA, Colorado, and others Reported highs earlier in this week, the data shows. I'm in my Bloomberg terminal right now. And what this data shows is how the wave that started in the upper Midwest is now hitting most of the nation and having moved to more populous states in the region and even pushing back into the Northeast and the West. It's one of the unknown variables. It's one of the unknown variables in this election in battleground states. And mind you, four in ten of the electorate, the, Amer- the voting electorate, exists only in 13 battleground states. Think about that for a second. The 2016 race decided by just 77 plus thousand votes in three states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. So just by sheer history, this is just one of the incredibly unknown variables factored into who shows up on November 3rd if the state has an uptick in cases. Will that deter a voter? Will it deter a single voter, and will that have an impact in a county, and will that have an impact on the state's results? It's why President Trump and Joe Biden were out in earnest on the campaign trail and why they will continue to be so over the next four days now until November 3rd. President Trump swung through the Midwest all throughout Friday, rallying supporters in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota Recent polling has Trump trailing Biden in all three of those states, but still within striking distance. He had a rally in Waterford Township, which is suburban Detroit, and President Trump took credit for what he wants to talk about and what he wants to talk about a lot, the economy, citing a 33.1 annual rate of increase in GDP from the last quarter, the numbers that came out just yesterday. Here he is talking about the economic recovery in Battleground, Michigan.
9: I used to talk about the V. This is a super V. This is the biggest number, 33.1, and the news doesn't want to talk about it because it's positive.
3: Meanwhile, Joe Biden continuing to make an ethos appeal, saying that he would unify the country. He was speaking in what has become, shockingly, another battleground state, Iowa. Here he is in Iowa earlier today.
10: I believe when you use your power, the power of a vote, We're going to change the course of the country
2: and, quite frankly, the world.
3: So it all comes as now the economy and the coronavirus on a collision course of sorts within not just volatility in the electorate, but in the markets. U.S. stocks dropped, capping their biggest weekly route since March after earnings from the largest tech companies disappointed investors concerned that a slowing economy will damp profit. The Nasdaq 100 declined about 2.6% And then we get this from Tyler Goodspeed, acting chairman and vice chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. He spoke earlier today with David Weston about whether or not fiscal stimulus could come in the lame duck.
7: Here he is. We would like to see phase four legislation, we're disappointed that uh, it appears congressional leadership. The speaker has not been negotiating in good faith, but we here at the White House remain committed to uh, phase four legislation and also to ensuring that the tax and regulatory regime that delivered such unprecedented gains uh, through 2019 extend into the future.
3: Jack Kingston is a former Republican Georgia congressman, a Trump 2020 campaign surrogate, and Scott Bolden is a Democratic strategist, former D.C. Democratic Party chairman and attorney. Jack, so that's where we are. Coronavirus on a collision course with the economy. 77,000 votes in question that Joe Biden needs to win back. Can he do it on Tuesday?
9: I don't think he's going to be able to do it because his message is one of we are about to enter a dark period in America. Americans don't like pessimism. Even during World War II, Franklin Roosevelt and across the sea, Winston Churchill, always spoke about the future and our greatness and our strength. Um, I just came back from Georgia, and I was down there for David Perdue doing a little campaign, and we're basically reopened. Yes, we wear masks. Yes, we social distance. But today, this morning, I was in a restaurant. Every table was full, and we're not having these spikes. And you know what? If you do have a spike in cases, it's not the same as a spike in deaths, we can't cower in a basement as a nation. We've got to live with coronavirus, and we've got to power through it. That doesn't mean we're not going to beat it. It doesn't mean we're not going to have a vaccine and a therapeutic. But we can't cower in our basement. We don't have that kind of economic luxury.
3: All right. I want to talk about Georgia coming up, and we're going to talk more about battleground states in Wisconsin with uh, Congressman Style who will join us. But, Scott, I want to get your, your insights here uh, in terms of what you just heard from Jack, which is this closing argument coming from President Trump that there needs to be a more consistent reopening message versus what we're hearing from Biden, which is it's going to be a dark and cold winter if the coronavirus isn't under control.
10: Well, Jack and Donald Trump are in denial. You don't hear them with a plan on how to have that V, how to reopen. What you're hearing from Joe Biden is the same thing the scientists are telling you, that we are entering a dark record 80 to 90 thousand new cases a day. 35 to 40 states have increases and in some some record increases. That's just reality. That's not a doom and gloom assessment. And Donald Trump is a potential largest spreader, if you will, because he's okay. looking for votes and he's holding these major rallies in many of these swing states and battleground states. What will be interesting is. How many people who attend Donald Trump's um, event, if you will, catch COVID? And, Jack, I must tell you, catching COVID is potentially more deadly than the flu or cold. Are we comparing deaths and catching the virus in comparison to votes And Donald Trump's lies Uh, about the economy and turning the corner. We're not turning the corner. We're headed to the bottom of the V, and there's no plan to, to bounce up from it.
3: Okay. Now, here's what we're going to do. So that was our that was the lay of the land from the Republicans and the Democrats. Coming up, they're both going to pivot for me to policy because that's really what is fascinating here when you look and trace the data. We've noted this on this program for quite some time. I'm looking at the charts right now on my Bloomberg terminal. Germany, uptick in cases, progressive country. France, uptick in cases, progressive country. Both are having to impose new restrictions in their countries as a result of the uptick. Here in Washington, D.C., locally, schools, set to reopen on november 4th a progressive city led by mayor bowser so i think it's confusing and i want to do better than just saying and finger pointing that there's no plan let's discuss the plans and critique them disagree if you will but there still are plans that are in action around the world i'm kevin cerilli chief washington correspondent for bloomberg tv and radio you're listening to bloomberg 99.1
2: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cerilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
3: I'm Kevin Cerilli, chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Happy Halloween Eve. Happy Halloween Eve. And uh I don't know. I mean, I, you, you got to be safe and I know families are across the region are, are trying to trying to figure out you know what do we what do we do right but just be safe be safe that's what i say i'm kevin cerilli chief washington correspondent for uh, bloomberg television and for bloomberg radio I, I saved this story in the bloomberg terminal by my colleagues isis almeda and marvin g perez fewer americans will trick or treat this halloween as covid19 numbers continue to climb while kids may be disappointed here comes the Bloomberg angle. The worst effects will be felt in Africa, where the world's top cocoa producers may struggle to keep paying farmers a premium. This story is so important and I highlighted it. They published this in mid-October on October 16th. And it's it's really Well, I'm going to keep reading it. Ivory Coast and Ghana raised the price they pay cocoa growers by more than 20%. For the larger of two annual crops, but with the pandemic keeping people at home and Halloween sales, which account for 10% of Hershey's business, Halloween accounts for 10% of Hershey's business, the West African nations may struggle to lure chocolate makers to buy beans at a high enough level to keep paying farmers that were promised the premium. They account for 70% of the supply, Ghana and the Ivory Coast they have started charging a premium of $400 a metric ton for their beans, which we're trying to to improve income. So it's, it's, it's a really small example. And, and I say this, but it's, it's a really, really small example, but hopefully one, maybe that hits close to, to home about how the pandemic impacts people and supply chains in a way that maybe we don't think about. There are farmers in the Ivory coast in Ghana, um, who are impacted by what's going on. We're all, I mean, so, yeah. All right, a couple of days away from the election, farming, such a crucial, crucial topic, agriculture, trade, such a crucial, crucial topic in this election, in battleground states like Iowa, where Joe Biden was earlier today, like Michigan, like Wisconsin, like Georgia, like Georgia. And that's why I'm so grateful to have With me for the hour, Scott Bolden, Democratic strategist, Jack Kingston, a former Republican Georgia congressman. Jack, you know, I talk about farming there just from a a geopolitical, international, U.S.-Africa perspective. Uh, You know, as as Senator Chris Coons, a Democrat of Delaware, knows a lot about. But let me talk to you about what's happening in Georgia and the fallout of agriculture and how it's going to play not in the presidential race but in the Senate race.
9: Well, David Perdue has both served on the agriculture Committee um, actually yielded the seat to Kelly Losterb. We've always had someone on the Agriculture Committee in the Senate and Austin Scott in the House. It's a huge driver to our diverse economy, and it ties into our port, therefore exports. Uh, Hopefully, every one of your listeners has tried our delicious Vidalia onions and our uh, wild shrimp from the coast of Georgia and many other farm products. If you eat watermelon, it probably came from Georgia. If you have peanut butter, it probably came from a Georgia peanut farmer. So, yep. And then, obviously, the poultry came from Georgia. So um, I, I think it's very, very important. Now, the farm economy... Um, you know, it, it always has its ups and downs. And and I would say, Kevin, you, you actually put your finger on something that's a little bit more bipartisan than most of the issues yep. that are out there because uh, uh, farm policy is driven by um, uh, regional concerns rather than by party. But um, it, uh, it I would say David Perdue knows agriculture. His opponent, I don't think, has been outside of suburban Atlanta. And so David Perdue is definitely going to get the farm vote, and I think it's going to put him over the top.
3: Well, I think it's interesting because we I, I want to spend this time, Scott, talking about the Senate in particular, because should Joe Biden win uh, or should pre- President Trump get reelected, how they are able to govern is going to be dramatically impacted by The the dynamics in in Congress, And, and it's an understatement between divided government versus one party in power. So from your perspective, Scott, where do you feel Democrats are most poised to pick up seats in the Senate and how will they do it?
10: Yeah, um, they're going to do it on the shirt tells and the political tells of the Biden-Harris um, uh, camp and campaign. Um, uh, the Democrats are in play in a lot of red states that seem like they're turning purple or blue. They're in play in Georgia, in Iowa, in Maine, North Carolina, South Carolina, uh, and, and other uh, states that are Republican-held. I think we only need to pick up three or four Regardless of whether we lose Doug Jones in Alabama, uh, we may even pick up a uh, Mississippi uh, Senate race. And so uh, Donald Trump's just poor leadership in handling of COVID has put a lot of these races in play. They're going to be tight, right? But if you look at Colorado, if you will, and and Montana, if the Democrats sweep these states, they'll be in control of the Senate. They're going to hold the House. And when Biden wins, they'll have a Democratic president. The Democrats won't have an option to complain. Then they'll be able to lead <laughs> this country, and the pressure will be on them at that point. You know, there's there's a blessing and a curse in controlling all three houses. It, 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 it's 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 the blessing is the Democrats control all three houses. The curse is now, what are you going to do? I got to lead and implement and make sure America moves forward from the last four years. So will I, I think Jack would concede that a lot of these states are in play, and that the Dems could take over the Senate, which uh, would change the political face and the ability of the president to move the country forward.
3: I feel that I'm back in Delco with my politically diverse family. In the hoagie, I feel like I need a Bub and Pop's hoagie to like <laughs> to have this conversation. Maybe some bench chili bowl. Something on a Friday show with some with some chocolate for Halloween. I don't know, but Jack and and. Uh, uh, it's it's just it's quite it's it's great i love it i think this is a, 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 the great energy that we need uh from both of you in terms of uh what we're what we're seeing you know i i just think the senate is something scott that i got my eye on so much because from regardless of who wins i can't stress this enough and and y- it it will change the way it will change the way a president trump re- uh, governs and it will change the way a Joe Biden governs if, if he's president. The Democrats need to net three seats in order to win back the Senate. The current balance, of course, is 53 to 47. It's going to be fascinating because ticket splitting in 2016, 34 of the Senate outcomes lined up. They all lined up with how the top of the ticket went. So ticket splitting was a thing of the past. Will it be this time? We'll find out. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 991.
2: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
3: You know, we talked earlier about the supply chain and how cocoa, the supply chain, is uh, being impacted by the, by the lack of uh, Americans trick-or-treating. And so we talked about how the Ivory Coast and farmers in the Ivory Coast and Ghana are going to be impacted about, by this. Well, then I go to Wisconsin battleground state we're going to ask him about it, our next guest and i see that the gummy bear factory they're building a gummy bear factory in wisconsin the fir- haribo you know the the gummies they're building the first north american production facility in wisconsin nbc 15 wm tv our next guest knows a thing or two about this he's a congressman for the district brian style republican from wisconsin how did that come about it's, you know that's a big deal a production facility in your district
10: Thanks
11: for having me on. It's great. We're seeing strong economic growth on this interstate corridor kind of between Milwaukee and Chicago in the community of Kenosha, Pleasant Prairie, to be exact. We're excited when international businesses like Herringbow, a German family-owned company, come to Wisconsin to build one of their biggest facilities to make gummy bears and other products to be manufactured here in the United States of America. That's a win. For us, that's a win for workers. I'm excited. It's great that they're coming here. Wisconsin has great logistics. It's got a great workforce. we got a good business environment. And hopefully we'll see more and more companies coming and expanding here in southeast Wisconsin.
3: Okay. Now, is this now your favorite Halloween candy? Well,
9: we actually,
11: in the southeast Wisconsin, in Janesville, Wisconsin, my hometown, we make warheads. No. Uh, so I'm a big Warhead fan. We had Jelly Bellies over there, uh, and so we have more candy produced in Southeast Wisconsin than most people appreciate. But I tell I you, the I love gummy bears, and I'm excited that they're going to be produced. Spoken uh, like here a true candy Wisconsin politician,
3: well. Congressman. I got to be honest. I'm from outside. I'm a PA guy myself, and Hershey's. You know, I, I'm loyal to the Hershey chocolate. I love me some Hershey's, but I love Butterfingers. But uh, you know, I like candy corn. I think candy corn's gotten a bad rap in, in recent years. But I didn't know Warheads. I used to give them to my dad. And I would trick him when I was a kid and I'd say, ah, this, it's uh, it's very sweet. And then it would be like incredibly sour. And then, yeah. Anyway, let's talk politics. Wisconsin, you mentioned Kenosha County. Uh, it, it was a couple of hundred votes. I think it was like 200 votes that it went for Trump last cycle. Um, and obviously, Wisconsin is such a key battleground state. Give me beyond the talking points. What are, give me an analytical perspective of Wisconsin and what's going to have to happen for Republicans to win? Where do they need turnout? Where do the, uh, the Democrats uh, need to, where do they need to turn out? And wh- what are, what do they need? Where do they need to hold off Democrats?
11: So the, the, the Democrats, as you look at it in Wisconsin, their path is usually through what i say the latte liberals. That's kind of your university <laughs> professor type in Madison. I know a lot
3: of Republicans who they, drink lattes, by the way. Go ahead.
11: <laughs> nothing wrong with throwing milk in your coffee. I just don't call it a latte. So yeah, yeah, they, they rely on that demographic plus uh, uh, an African-American base and then your traditional blue-collar workers, Republicans, rural area. What I call country club Republicans, which is in some of those <laughs> northern suburbs, some of the suburbs around Milwaukee. And then again, your standard blue collar worker. And what we're seeing play out in southeast Wisconsin, in Racine and Kenosha County, that is the folks that lace up their boots, go into work day in and day out. And those folks are maybe historical Democrats. Maybe their grandfather was a Democrat. And they look now and they say the Democratic Party of today just doesn't line up with their views, their their belief that we need to have trade agreements that put American workers and American farmers first. The importance of keeping our communities safe and standing uh, with the men and women of law enforcement. And I think the president knows that he's coming back to Kenosha County into the city of Kenosha for his second to last campaign event of this whole cycle. He'll be, I'll be with him on Monday night uh, in Kenosha, speaking directly to some of the hardest workers uh, here in Southeast Wisconsin. And when you see companies like Herringbone coming to Wisconsin, when you talk to these teams and say, why are you choosing Southeast Wisconsin to come to? Time and again, they'll tell you it's the workforce, it's the men and women that wake up and get the job done. And those folks are who we're going to be battling for here on the homestretch for votes in the state of Wisconsin.
3: I see. I think this is fascinating. Congressman uh, Brian Stiles on with us, Republican from the important First Congressional District of Wisconsin, you know, because we talked about a little bit yesterday where I grew up outside of Philadelphia. Uh, fracking is such an incredibly, incredibly important issue. Energy is such an incredibly important issue, and you alluded to this. I mean, typically these are more unionized jobs. They're Kennedy Catholics, for lack of a better uh, term, from yesteryear, who the president was able to win in 2016. And and so, can you just explain to political junkies who, you know, I want to be respectful of them, but they didn't grow up. You know, And in the, in the, those parts of the country. And so they don't they they don't necessarily un- understand that there are thousands of, of working class voters across this country who are swing voters and they're looking at this through a very different prism than cable news media, Congressman.
11: Well, I think that's that's the distinction between what I call the latte liberal, you can call it whatever you like, (laughs) but the the actual blue-collar worker that's waking up every day, lacing up their boots, and going out to work. I spent 10 years working in manufacturing before I ran for office. Uh, I know these men and women. Uh, They work their tails off. And when you look at the importance of the issues that I think is true for almost all Americans but is really front of mind for many of these men and women, they want to know their communities are safe. They want to know that we're putting trade agreements that don't sell out American workers, that put American workers and farmers first. So we can take our products made here in Southeast Wisconsin and Kenosha or Racine or anywhere in the United States and be able to sell that freely, fairly, and reciprocally abroad. They want pro growth policies and they want a president that's fighting for them. And I think it's a very different approach than you get maybe inside the beltway in Washington, D.C. or in in a Manhattan office tower. These are folks uh, like myself who are working hard uh, and they want to have the federal government fighting for them. Uh, And I think that the president's message of fighting for workers, and we saw it firsthand uh, in Southeast Wisconsin before we got punched in the face by coronavirus, we were seeing lower unemployment rates, some of the lowest unemployment rates that we had seen in generations. We were seeing the beginning of rising wages And people were excited in the direction we were going. Obviously, we got hit by coronavirus. It's a disease that we're going to ultimately have to defeat. But then the question will become, who is best to rebuild the United States economy and get everyone who wants a job back into the workforce? And I think it's pretty clear that the pro-growth policies put forward uh, by Republicans are the path. And four years ago, Kenosha County, as you noted, uh, the president won it by a few hundred votes. To put that in perspective for folks that aren't intimately familiar with Kenosha County, the last time the county voted for a Republican was 1972. Wow. So Kenosha County wow. voted for Mondale over Reagan. I didn't in even 84. know that. 72? So wow. So, so you're going back a ways. And so it's, again, it's a lot of these folks that are looking and saying the National Democrats have gone so far left that they're no longer in the best interest of workers who lace up their boots every day. And I think that's where they're going to give a real strong look to the president. And the president coming back on Monday for his second-to-last campaign event right in the heart of Kenosha and between Kenosha and Racine, kind of this corridor between Milwaukee and Chicago with hardworking folks. They're going to give him a final listen. And I think they're going to like the message that he delivers.
3: All right. We got 90 seconds left, but I want to ask you this about policy because you're on the committee. You're on the Financial Services Committee, and I do want to ask you this. Just from a, from a, a geopolitical perspective, I mean, do you think that, that there's any bipartisanship on, on what, what can be done to, to thwart off the economic risks from uh, the Communist Party of China? we got literally like a uh, minute 15 left.
11: Yeah, I I think as we get through this election, I think partisanship is going to have to be put aside. We're going to have to put our our working boots on and get to work on this. We're going to need to make sure that we're onshoring, bringing back to the United States of America key components of our supply chain, in particular as it relates to the protective equipment of nurses and doctors, as it relates uh, to our prescription drugs, And again, I actually just met with a company looking at putting a facility in Wisconsin to begin producing medical equipment here. This can't be a partisan issue. This is one of those things where we're going to all have to work together to make sure we're keeping America safe and healthy.
3: And Brett Favre backing uh, President Trump today. Brett Favre, I I take it you're a Packers fan.
11: Big Packers fan. The okay. president is actually, I believe, in Green Bay right yeah. now. He was moments ago, at least, <laughs> uh, finishing up his speech there. Um, yeah. And so Brett Favre uh, making that announcement. Uh, Brett Favre, great great quarterback. Packers are having a good year this year.
3: Okay, but the Eagles are going to beat the Cowboys this weekend. Thank you to Congressman Style, Republican from Wisconsin. Appreciate it, as always. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
2: You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
3: I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Mars candy, based in McLean. Milky Way Twix, M and M's, Snickers. I love all the candy. I mean, I've got a huge sweet tooth. My dad used to take me to Barrel Grocer back in Delco many years ago. We would get uh, the gi- remember those giant. Jawbreakers that were like the size of an orange. I would beg my dad. I would say, "Dad, could I please get a jawbreaker?" And he would say, "Kev, I'm not buying you that. If you want it, go up to your piggy bank, empty it out, count the change, and then you can buy it." He wanted to see how bad I wanted it. And then I did it, and he was like, "All right, it's like two bucks. I'll get you the, <laughs> I'll get you the jawbreaker." Uh, I wonder what my panel's favorite candy is as we socially distant celebrate. Halloween. Jack Kingston, former GOP Georgia congressman. What's your favorite candy, Jack?
9: An apple, a banana, or oh my gosh, I'm shocked by your
3: behavior. I, 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 you know, Jack, you you were probably the house that gave out apples on Halloween, weren't you, Jack? (laughs) There's always one on the block. You know, Jack. uh,
9: I do want to tell you one thing. When my daughter was ten years old, we toured the Hershey's factory. It's so and much it fun. Was
3: Hershey's Lent. chocolate. It was Hershey's. during Lent, and oh, the no. kid
9: had given up chocolate.
3: Oh and no! I watched with great you amazement.
9: Uh, you know, <laughs> but I, I'll tell you what. It, I. I I didn't. I, I let her make her own decision, and she chose the Lord. So I was I was, I was impressed
6: because
3: I let her make her own decision. if
9: it had been she the three the of Lord. us, we would have filled our pocket. <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh, yeah. For anyone who doesn't know, Hershey's Chocolate World is a huge tourist attack, uh, attraction in, in the battleground state of Pennsylvania. Christine Barada, I promise I'm pivoting back to politics soon. But it it's literally like a scene out of Willy Wonka with a chocolate river. I mean, and they literally yeah. show you how to make it. So yeah. that's torturous for a kid not to be able yeah, to yeah. do that. Scott Bolden, quickly, what's your favorite Halloween candy? Democratic um, it It's
10: the Heath Bar. And okay. By the way, re- Reed Smith, the law firm I've been at for 30 years, we represented Hershey for years, actually. And if you get to be on that account, you get to visit the Hershey uh, (laughs) complex, if you will. Uh, My waistline looks like I I represent them, but I don't.
3: You know, who but, uh, says Republicans and Democrats uh, can't get uh, along on a Friday before an Ke- election? Kevin,
9: right. I, Kevin, I did want to remind you that Scott promised to take the three of us to dinner, I um, remember. depending on the outcome of this election. And Scott, we're oh yeah, to hold you to it.
3: I remember, and I'm always hungry, Washington, D.C., so, you know. (laughs) Um, Okay, it's time now for my favorite part of the program, which is what is on the panel's radar. I really want, and I know this panel is going to do it for me, I really want it to be specific and nuanced and not talking points. I want it to be data-oriented, something that someone's going to go into the weekend and say, you know what? I heard that on Bloomberg Radio. Sound on about this upcoming election. So I'm, uh, with that, that's a lot of pressure. But I, but I feel that uh, that 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 our that our states that our states that our panel can do it. So Jack, I'm going to have you kick things off. What's on your radar? The final Friday before Tuesday's election.
9: Okay. First thing, despite his wayward politics, I love Scott Bolton. So let me get that out of <laughs> the way. Um, Secondly, let let me say, people are just assuming the House stays Democrat if it doesn't grow. There are 13 seats, which we call ruby red seats, seats that Donald Trump won by 6% or more. Those seats are in play. Then there's 17 House seats that Trump won. Maybe he just squeaked by, but he did one. And then there are another 23 that Republicans have held in the past. The reason why that's relevant is Republicans only need 17 seats to flip the House. I think the House is in play, and I think it's going to be the sleeper story of, of the night.
3: That's fascinating. Yeah. So wait, so wait, so because this, this is a really interesting point. So you actually think— that there could be a reversal in the House. Jack Kingston, not hope, not hope, but you actually believe there's a path for Republicans to take back the House.
9: I I think there is a path because, remember, now, as Scott pointed out earlier, if Donald Trump was to lose big, like by 8 to 10 points, that's going to bring down lots of Senate and House races. But if he loses by 3 points, that's not going to hurt him. And then if he wins, it's certainly going to help them. But people know how to split their ticket these days. And the polling is showing that where members of Congress are higher or a different level than Donald Trump in some of these polls. So I think that the House is a lot more in
10: play than people think it is.
3: Okay. Okay. But, Scott, respond to that before I ask what's on your radar.
10: Yeah, that's a heavy lift. I think the math is interesting. But i got to tell you, the, the country is so polarized. And Donald Trump is such a chaos president that I think the Dems are not, uh, and even the independents and the moderate Republicans, who are all out there against Trump and the GOP. That's going to be a heavy lift to turn those 17 seats. We'll have to see. We'll have all right, what's see.
3: on your radar? What's on your radar?
10: Let me tell you what's on my—I'll tell you. You know, uh, does Donald Trump—can he catch lightning in a bottle the second time? By all accounts, in 2016, you had the impact of the Comey effect. You had, another, you had a, a not so great candidate in Hillary Clinton and the emails and what have you. But this year, in 2020, Donald Trump needs to find new voters in rural America, poor working uh, white Americans who have never voted before because his 40 percent can't grow based on his policies and based on what's occurred the last four years. Are there enough? poor white working-class Americans who have never been voted before or vote rarely that will come out for Donald Trump because they believe in him, not his policies, but believe in him, and doesn't he have a go T V program to get them out, get them counted, and squeak out a win? To me, that's the only path to 270 for him, and there are a lot of people uh, who agree with that uh, concept or that pathway. At least that's the only way he wins in the end.
3: It's going to be remarkable uh, just to see, obviously, the 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 numbers. And for us, for us, uh, for us, political junkies, I mean, and this is why I I really I am always cautious to make hypothetical. I don't have the data to make to to perform an analysis before an election. Um, the only data that we have that's come in, and this is what's on my radar, uh, are the early the. De- the early mail-in ballot information that we have, and, and I've, I saved this today. Tyler Pager, who's done an incredible job, an incredible job for Bloomberg reporting on the Biden campaign, he noted this in one of his reports today. In Arizona, two-thirds of Latino registered voters have not yet cast a ballot. In Florida, half of Latino and black registered voters have not yet voted, but more than half of white voters have cast ballots according to data from Catalyst, which is a Democratic data firm. In Pennsylvania, 75% of registered black voters have not yet voted. So the turnout amongst minority groups in key battleground states, Arizona, Florida, Pennsylvania, has some Democratic strategists seeing some warning signs in some battleground states. Now, you look at the polls The polls were wrong in 2016. I don't really want to hear that people say, no, well, the polls are right. The the popular vote. No, everyone thought Hillary Clinton was going to win that campaign. The polls were wrong. And um, so it's going to be remarkable. It's going to be absolutely remarkable. If you are celebrating Halloween, if you and your family are celebrating Halloween, please do it in a safe, safe way. Be safe, be safe, be safe. And um, Jack, what was your best Halloween costume when you were growing up?
9: Oh, I was a Canadian Maltese. <laughs> I had a Maltese uniform. <laughs> you know, back in those I days, did. once you had one costume, you had to wear I don't even know what that it.
3: is. I, I don't even know what that is. I'm gonna have to Google that.
9: Y- yeah, you'll definitely. He have was a to. a hey, I do. <laughs> I do want to say one last comment. We have 30 seconds, so the, you
3: can't. I've got to go. The, I got to go.
9: The GDP just just went up. We covered that in the first point.
3: block. Jack, that was my first words out of my mouth at the top of the show was about the GDP. I'm Kevin Cirilli. Thanks for listening. And by the way, the GDP growth, it increased 33.1% last quarter. You're listening to Bloomberg. Happy Halloween. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.